Hey everybody, thanks for listening to the Fanzine Podcast. Just before we get started with the show, this is your host, Tony Fletcher. I want to invite you to sign up for the weekly newsletter over at tonyfletcher.substack.com. It'll give you updates on this podcast, my other podcast, all forms of recommendations with a midweek update, a long-form weekend read. Sign up is absolutely free. There are interview archives, uh, additional podcast features, and you will be able to to see uh, more of the fanzines that uh, we're talking about on this show. That's tonyfletcher.substack.com. Thanks again. Now on with the pod. It's the fanzine. Fanzine. Podcast. I mean, the thing about a fanzine was holding it in your hand, right? and looking at the way it had been put together and the punk way it had been put together, quite quite frankly, and it had a staple in it, you know, and and that was, that is a fanzine, right? Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the Fanzine Podcast. I think we're up to episode 20, and having done nine previous episodes of this second season or series, whichever word you prefer, there have been interviews with... Um, with fanzine writers uh, in the UK, uh, all about music. We are ready to start expanding the content of this fanzine podcast because it does still seem to me there isn't another that's uh, covering quite the same ground as we are. So we got it all to ourselves. Um, With the next episode, I plan to have our first non-British guest on here, and I'm hoping to expand further away from purely um, the music scene. And in fact, in a large part, that's exactly what we are doing today well we're, we're staying in the uk we're going to discuss american zines as well and as a perhaps a prelude to widening the fanzine podcast horizon we're going to rewind that cassette tape all the way back to the origins of the fanzine the word fanzine the first examples and we're going to follow that and we're then going to fast forward all the way to the current day and talk about uh, talk with somebody who's producing a zine right now on what I can only call antiquated but dearly loved <laughs> old um, printing equipment. So my two guests today are Rob Hansen and the first repeat visitor, the re- first return interviewee, Hamish Ironside. Why don't you both introduce yourself with a little bit about your own background in fanzines, fanzine culture, archiving the fanzine culture, and and um, that way we'll also get to tell your voices apart. And I think I'm going to ask you to go first, Rob. Hi, my name is Rob Hansen. I've been involved in um, science fiction fandom since 1975. Um, my first fanzine that I published was called Epsilon, which I published first issue of in 1976. And it ran for 18 issues until 1985. Uh, subsequent to that, I got very interested in the history of fandom, SF fandom. And I've written quite a bit on, on the subject since. And we can see that behind you, you've got an awful lot of folders as well. And I do believe you you, you have a whole archive in your in your home. Um, Hamish, welcome back. Tell me about yourself for, for those who didn't listen to episode 11. Uh, well, I, uh, I did um, a couple of fanzines in the late 80s and early 90s. Um, my first one was about uh, Sparks, the uh, legendary band. And then I, I did um, five issues of a fanzine called Saudage. Then I kind of drifted out of fanzines and I've been working in publishing over the last sort of 20 years or so. But um, I, I got sort of interested in fanzines again, just started thinking about them six or seven years ago. And with a friend of mine, Gavin Hogg, uh, we worked on a book doing an oral history about fanzines, British fanzines. And uh, it consists of interviews with fanzine editors. And, and it was through that that I uh, got in touch with Rob, who's the first chapter in the book. And uh, since, since publishing that book, which came out um, about 18 months ago now, um, I've bought my own Gestetna just to see if I could get it to work. And I've got back to producing a couple of fanzines this year on, uh, on the antiquated equipment, as I think you call it. I did call it antiquated, and there may be many people listening to this who say, Gestetna, what's a Gestetna? We will get to that. We will get to that. 
<clears throat> your modesty prevented you from uh, giving the title of the book. I have it right in front of me. It's called We Peaked at Paper, An Oral History of British Zines. And uh, anybody who's interested in that story about the book and uh, what's in the book and, and the various people that Gavin and Hamish tracked down and interviewed, that is episode 11 of um, this podcast. It was the first of the, of the relaunch and uh, set us off nicely. And like I say, we're going to now go off in a slightly different direction so rob i want to come to you first and ask you what was the very first fanzine in which country was it published and did it did it call itself a fanzine no because that term didn't exist then um there's some debate about this about what what precisely constitutes a fanzine and who actually did it first um so the um because the very first um organization was something that was put out by um Gernsback. and so therefore the first publication that was aimed at fans was actually a was actually a club magazine and so that's not actually considered by some people a genuine first if you see what i mean is so, that the um, one that, that's called the comet or not that's correct yeah, yeah so the, the comet. comet now uh i should also say how how would i know that it's the comet there is the most incredible like the, the science fiction people um and I'm saying this for my music fans here, are way better at archiving than we have been, although that's now now changing. Um, so there are going to be a couple of links uh, in the show notes, and especially over at the Substack, uh, which will uh, allow you to access these original zines. But yes, the comet, I have a copy of it open here, quote, open on the internet. So interestingly, how would you define the comet? And I guess you're saying that for you, it's probably not really a fanzine. Yeah, I, I mean, you've actually looked at it. I never have done a search. I'm aware that it was there. And you know, mm -hmm. I was never that interested in the very early stuff because, you know, that wasn't where I considered the you know, um, real type fanzines. Uh, probably the first one well, I don't know. It, it really is difficult. There's like about three or four different candidates, depending, as I say, how you commented that. Um, Julia Schwartz, who was an editor later at um, DC Comics, always claimed that the fanzine that he put out was um, was the first one, um, which, again, it's a claim, but whether whether it's true or not, I don't, who knows? And then again, the, um, the guys who created Superman put out something fairly early on that could also be claimed to be a fanzine. So it's it's a bit vague. Yeah, it's bound to be. It's a little like asking. Uh, uh, it's amazing how often this comes up. What was the first rock and roll record? Or, you know, who was the first punk band? I mean, these, you know, who invented the wheel? Like, history is full of, of, uh, of, of humans. And I think evolution in general just keeps improving. And to that extent, self-published magazines have been, uh, or self-publications, you know, self-published small uh, uh, publications have been around forever really since the printing press was invented so my take here and i did a little bit of homework is so you, let's let's put a date on these when did um when did the comic come out and there's another one that followed it just a couple of months later what year are we talking about 1930 right that's in the u.s what year was the first similar publication in in the uk and what was that one 1936 nova terra put out uh, from nuneaton of all places Fanzines come from the greatest places. They usually come from some pretty, uh, the, you know, I was in London, but some of the best fanzines come from some pretty small, small towns. And then what do you date at your end, Rob, the first use of the word fanzine? Right. Now, we know exactly when the first use was. It was in 1940. But to understand why, where the word came from, you have to kind of go back quite a few years before that, because um, the start of, of um, SF fandom, if you like, was with amazing stories. June 1926, the very first issue. Mm -hmm. um, now that was Hugo Gernsback was the editor, and he did something uh, that was very useful, which was he started printing letters from people with their full names and addresses. So therefore, those people started getting in touch with each other, and they therefore started forming clubs. And then eventually, you end up to the point where you know you get where we are now. Um, and he was in the second, in the third issue of uh, Amazing Stories. He was the first to call us fans. Um, because we were just readers prior to that. So therefore, the, you know, let the fan group start. And then fast um, to begin with, the, when they started putting out, as I said, the first fanzines, 1930, et cetera, start of the 30s, they weren't called fanzines. They were called, because it was they were fan magazines. Mm -hmm. And the first uh, um, contraction of that was fan mag. 
And this was fine until the mid-1930s. In the mid-1930s, um, Hollywood, um, from the mid-1930s onwards, uh, in, the, in the world outside, they started using that term to describe um, sensationalized gossip and speculation about movie stars, the magazines that were out then. These were called fan magazines. So therefore, SF fans thought, we can't use this term anymore. We need a new one. And so uh, they searched about for a new term. Uh, not everybody. Some people were quite happy to continue on with um, with fan mag. So one of the first ones was a contraction of amateur magazine, which was Amzine, which never really hmm. caught on. I wonder and why. Then, uh, fan mag, they just decided to drop the M and it became fanag, which brings us to 1940. And the guy who invented the word fanzine, which was a guy called Russell Louis Russell Chauvenet. Uh, and he coined the word in the October 1940 issue of his fanzine detours. And I can quote you what he said. We hereby protest against the uneuphonious word fanag and announce our intention to plug fanzine as the best short form of fan magazine. So that was the world's very first use of the word fanzine 83 years ago. That is truly, truly fascinating. I love that he used the word plug as well, because that would have seemed to me quite modern in terms of like being a, you know, a music plugger. Who's plugging your records? You know, who's plugging your zine for you? Who's, who's you know, pitching for you? So I find that pretty fascinating as well, actually. That's like... Uh, Really, really interesting all around. And I mean, Hamish, you're welcome to jump jump in on this, but I actually did my own research and went off to the uh, to, to the etymology of the word fan because I was kind of interested in this. And uh, what I what I learned there is that um, the the word fan apparently, obviously, I'm trusting the internet here, but it is etym online. The word fan, uh, you would assume, is a shortening of the word fanatic, and it may be. But it also may well be a shortening, a contractive contraction of the term fancy, which came about um, in the late 19th century. And, um, and, and fancy, so fancy was, sorry, fancy was a contraction of fantasy, which is all very interesting because it kind of brings us around to science fiction. Um, but what I was reading here is that the word, um, well, the word fanatic had been around for a long time. The word fan, in terms of you know actually being being what we're talking about here, not not something that blows air at you or that you wave in front of your face, uh, was in 1889 around baseball. So I, apparently that's the original use of the word fan, um, and it then does say that fan mail is attributed like like it's attested from 1920 in the Hollywood context, which you just mentioned, and the fan club is attested by 1930, which interestingly is the year that this um, this magazine, uh, the, the Comet, it's not really a magazine, it puts out a kind of newsletter. But I guess because it's the first science fiction uh, sort of amateur newsletter, it can claim to be a fanzine. And one thing I found really, really interesting here uh, in general is that much of the comet, you say you haven't really looked at much of it is quite boring. I mean, it's all about, you know, like, like, like we need to elect a president and we need you to pay your dues and we're serious about this. But what I did know is there was also a piece in there called Trends in Psychology. It was very short. It was basically your opinion article that you get in all kinds of fanzines. And when I looked at the planet, I was actually quite impressed because back in 1930, it was looking 100 years ahead with a, a little opinion piece that said, shall we eat in 2030? Because they were so concerned about population growth, even back in 1930, that they were wondering if we would uh, have enough food to eat uh, for, for the population boom. The answer is yes, we do. But by uh, cutting down the rainforest to graze the cattle, etc., um, we've gone and caused global warming along with a whole bunch of other machine-related activities. So now we know that global warming is the threat instead. But I just found that sort of interesting that there were editorials in there from the very beginning that were making some sort of observations. Um, I don't know if you have anything yourself to observe on that, but it was something I took away. Yeah, well, <clears throat> fans were involved with the politics and the situation of their day from the from the very beginning. I mean, um, Fred Pohl, who um, who became a famous SF writer, some of the first fanzines he put out were basically communist Um and in actual fact, it's which is why it's not terribly surprising that I know of at least one uh, one fan who went off to fight in the Spanish Civil War, for instance. So you know, there's a fair bit of that going on. Um, the other thing you need to know about science fiction fans fa uh, fanzines that people don't understand is there are two distinct types. There's the circon fanzine and the fanish fanzine. Now, the circon fanzine is what they all started off as, which means circon is short for serious and constructive, and that's basically, um, if you like, 
it's it's all focused on science fiction and it's focused on on um, science etc etc um the fanish fanzines are more devoted to fandom they're more about fandom and the subject matter can be anything you want it to be um and although science fiction is in the background it's not the primary thing they do and again as i said i think most people most people would assume that circon fanzines are the primary form they aren't fanish fanzines over the decades have been far more prevalent um uh, you know so it's not that surprising that you, you're seeing the first, um, if you like, inklings of it as far back as that. Yeah, let's bring you into this as well, Hamish, because... Yeah, the, well, I was just going to yeah. say about that, Tony, actually, that, um, I mean, much more recently we've had other kinds of zines and the word zine has become sort of popular. Um, the word fanzines even become a little bit outmoded, I think. These days it's all zines. And you get other kinds of zine like uh, Perzine, for example, a personal zine that can be quite a diary type of form. Oh. Now, this is something that I noticed when I, because I was completely new to SF zines when I interviewed Rob, but uh, I, I was able to have a look at his own, Epsilon, and I was just really struck by the fact that there was an almost total absence of SF in there. And... Um, a lot of diaristic sort of material and, uh, you know, just sort of content that was whatever, maybe something that was in the news, maybe something that was discussed in the pub. Um, and I, I said to Rob, you know, this this could be a fanzine from the 90s. You know, it's um, a, a music fanzine. Take away the music and the, the, the sort of in band interviews and the record reviews. You have the same sort of content. And that's the sort of stuff that I really like, by the way. I mean... The um the sort of incidentals. Yeah, and and to that to that note, um, Rob, you mentioned you did your own fanzine through the seventies, eighties, uh, which of course is is you know the period I was doing mine. So I uh, you also shared with me your epsilon. Um, uh, you know you have everything up online, and you shared that with me, and I figured to open. I think it's your fourth issue, uh, because the date of it, like at the very start of nineteen seventy eight is um, right when I changed the name of, of my zine because there was another one with the same name to Jamming. So the second or third issues of my, my zine that were printed at school. And uh, so I figured it might be fun to open up at the same time. It's early 1978 when punk has sort of, you know, filtered down. And to your credit, uh, right up top of your editorial, you wrote, uh, never mind the Sex Pistols, here's the bollocks. Yep. So, so to the extent that, uh, you know, we may have thought, oh, those science fiction people, they're off in their own world. Well, you, 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 it's pretty hard to ignore the Sex Pistols at that point, but you weren't off in your, entire, in your own world entirely. And as, as um, Hamish is pointing out, you know, there's a lot of uh, the classic fanzine irreverence in there. I noted that you're constantly apologizing <laughs> for your late issues, which is yep. just like a, a classic fanzine trope. And... Um, and and that like like Hamish says, as much of uh, of of this, if you're doing something that is by nature sort of amateur and self-produced, I guess it's going to it's going to say I don't have to conform to academic expectations here. I can do what I want. Is that how you approached your zine? Very much so. Yeah, because um, obviously, when I first started off, I'm an SF fan. I'm an SF reader. I go to conventions and I see that uh, that you know there's, there was a table there where they were selling fanzines. So I picked up a couple, and when I got home and read them, I was thinking, what is this? Where's the science fiction, as Hamish said? And then as I eventually got more into it and, and you know, um, and met more and more people, I then became part of, I became absorbed into the subculture, which is a thing in and of itself. That's the reason why I've written, I put together so many books about it, because you know, I've always been fascinated by the subculture that basically developed over most of the last century. Um, you know, like, for instance, um, one of the books, is let's see, Bixelstrasse, which is sorry, Bixelstrasse, which is about a six-year period in uh, the mid '40s in Los Angeles, and it's 400 pages. So there's plenty you can write about quite small parts of that period if you wish to do so. You know, because there are some periods that are actually quite interesting. Um, and, go on. Oh well, this is a uh, tangential. wasn't a note I originally had, but when you're putting out a book that specific, is that itself self-published it just you know is it is it a, a sort of book version of a fanzine in that regard yeah well this is it see because i mean i put them together i send them off to my friend dave who runs um, um ansible editions he puts together the um an ebook because he's quite good at all that and then if there's enough interest we then publish it as a pod you know print on demand book 
Um, and they, well, they've been selling reasonably well. I mean, you know, for, for what they are. But, uh, you know, so in terms of, we always make the um, the ebooks a free download. And then if you really want the, the you know, the printed version, then they are available. Um, free download, free downloads can be quite high. I mean, the one I did about, well, I think quite high. The um, one I did about, um, called Homefront, which is basically British fandom 1939 to 1945. So it's basically the yeah. war years. It's about how we got through the war on the Homefront. You know, that was, again, about 500 pages or so. And I think it's up to uh, about 600 downloads now, something like that, which isn't bad. Because, I mean, you know, when I was doing a fanzine, that was maybe 100, 150 copies tops. So Yeah, yeah. that's pretty impressive. And, and you know, going all the way back, how do we, how, how do we have copies of these earliest 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 fanzines uh were science i mean because i've interviewed people for this show who don't even have a copy of their first issue and i've only got one of mine and it happens to be off with people who are actually archiving music fanzines right now um people like how many copies would have been published as something like the comet and and i guess i guess people were smart enough to hold on to them for the for the science fiction day when the internet was invented and we could actually digitize these things <laughs> yeah, kind of yeah i mean um, there's a, a site online called fanac.org, which, um, basically are, you know, where people scan fan. I'm, I'm, I'm one of the volunteers who scans fanzines and I just looked up, um, cause they basically have scans of fanzines going back to the thirties there. And it's, yeah. it's a good effort of lots of people doing it. And I just looked up their stacks, stats online and they've got, um, 21 at the moment. Well, I say at the moment, this is actually a few months out of date. But these are the latest figures they had. At the moment, they've got 21,268 individual issues of 2,204 fanzine titles, totaling 381,748 pages. So we're not doing bad in terms of, uh, and that's not all of them by a long shot. I mean, when you've been putting deep, putting out fanzines for 90 years, there's a lot of material to get. You know, that's, I wouldn't like to even guess what percentage that is. Because, okay, you know, you, it's got to the point now that if I want to look up an old fanzine, 50 60 percent of the time i can find it there but the other 40 percent i can't so there's still a lot of stuff to find and, and you know get up there right so so just by an estimate there they're missing 40 to 50 percent of what actually came out hey hamish in terms of putting your book together um which which i love that you've already mentioned it span it also spins forwards beyond the the post-punk days into the current sort of world of perzines etc um did you, uh, I mean, how did you feel people were doing with archiving the music scenes? Did you, did you feel we're doing an okay job of that? But were, were you simultaneously or similarly coming across people who didn't have copies of their own zines? Oh, yeah, loads of them. Um, I mean, even Sniffing Glue, you know, um, they, they, most of the editors didn't have copies of their own zines. Um, and most of them, you can't find anything online. And no, I mean, I, I, I was sort of finding one or two little repositories where um, music zines had been. Normally, it's just the cover. But actually getting any of the inner content was, uh, was very difficult. And then, you know, I sort of, I would try to um, buy them occasionally. But, uh, you know, people are trying to sell them for crazy prices. Um, so, I, no, I, I mean, I don't feel like, um, I think the thing about the, the SF scene, although I don't know it, everything I know about it, I've learned from Rob, but it was always very organised from the start. And um, there was a community, a network, and it was almost like a, a web in itself. I don't think there ever was that with the, with the music people, they were so transient, you know, the, the whole spirit of the punk zines was um, that you would produce them uh, typically when you're very, very young and do them, you know, for maybe a year and then just forget about them. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, some people were actually told me, you know, well, of course I don't have copies of the, the fanzines I produce because uh, I produce them to sell them and, you know, if I sold them all, that's, uh, that's, that's what I wanted. Yeah, very, very, very much so. That's how I felt about it. Very often you would just take your, your last issue, you know, somebody says, oh, can I, can I buy a copy? You'd be like, yeah, here you go. And then you get home and go, oh, God, I don't have any others left. Can I afford a reprint? And because reprinting was not as easy as it is nowadays with publishing on 
demand. Um, going back, so the first, we mentioned the first British fanzine, and the name still wasn't a fanzine, but it's 1936. It's Terra Nova, uh, Nove Terre. Is, how do you pronounce that? Nova Terra? It's got Just an E Nova on Terra, there. yeah. It's, it's yeah. basically Latin for New Worlds. Right. So their debut issue is pretty fascinating because they actually ask a really, really, really good science fiction question. And they ask, the, the, the question they ask in the headline is, when will the spaceship arrive? And I think anybody who ever picked up an old science fiction book knows that, you know, early science fiction was trying to predict a future that some of which came true. We only have to think about like Jules Verne, for example. But um, that should really have been titled When Will We Land on the Moon? Because that's the, the question they're actually asking. And, and very interestingly, they got a range of answers from so-called experts. Um, the editors at, at Amazing Stories thought never while someone at Scoops, I don't know if you know what Scoops was, um, yes. uh, Rob, right, uh, predicted 1942. So that's a pretty wide range. The answer, of course, was 1969. But it, but it asks some really good scientific questions in terms of what had to be overcome. And it made a fair assumption that just about all the other problems, like, you know, the 24 problems they raised could be addressed while we got on with the, the, the 25th, which was the development of, of adequate fuel. And so... On one hand, some of us may go, oh, this bunch of nerds, uh, and I'm sorry, Robert, you know, you're welcome to say it about I'm, the music no, fans. I'm, you know, I'm these kind of like Comic-Con people that you know, they, they should get a real job. Well, uh, or get a life. You know, I'm sure that's been said at times. Um, mm. they're, they're smart. They're asking the right questions and coming up with the right theoretical answers as well. It's really, really interesting. Yeah. The it was weird being, um, I mean, I wasn't obvious, obviously I wasn't born till 54, but I've chatted to people who were around in the fifties and they said back then, if the fact that they believed that men would um, one day land on the moon meant most of the people thought they were nutters. So they were mocked for this kind of, you know, belief. And it was, it wasn't just the man in the street either. There were kind of, you know, some quite eminent people who said, this is absurd. This is obviously never going to happen, which shows how much they knew, of course. Yeah, that, that's, that's really, really, really good to know. And it's like trying to predict right now. I mean, we've, we're talking about archiving this stuff on the internet. None of us, I, I mean, really, realistically, could any of the three of us have predicted the internet when we were first doing zines? Maybe you, Hamish, possibly when you were first doing a zine, but as a kid? could, could No, us... no. I, I, I mean, I remember when um, email started in the 90s. My brother was on it quite early on. And uh, I, I had a natural antipathy towards it and and that has just stayed with me ever since and it, you know i loathe the internet and what i really hope for my um my science fiction future is that it somehow um implodes under its own weight we <laughs> have to get back to living a, a more civilized life with uh with, with no computers i i mean I, I i've never gone into um um into social media because i don't need something to wait something else to waste time on so I've never got, kind of gone into that, but I obviously find the uh, the internet quite useful. There's a lot of things I do I couldn't do without the internet. So I'm not I'm not quite as 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 far across on the Luddite scale as Hamish, although I do to some extent sympathise with the basic idea. Yeah. Well, then let's go. Let, let, let this this will be a great little segue. Um, looking at that copy of Nova Terra and um, it, it it the first couple of copies, and again they're online for people to look. And if you go to the uh, the, the Substack page, I'm going to have some covers up there. Um, I couldn't get over how similar it looked to the first covers that I did when I was producing my zine at school. And um, right before, like an hour, about an hour and a half ago, I, I sent a couple of covers over to you just in case you had a chance to look, because uh -huh. my recollection is that, uh, I mean, I know our first issue was done on a machine at my school, um, which I recall being erroneo, and that the next three, before I went to Offset LIFO and sort of took it seriously, were done at the girls' school down the road. The guy who actually had to print those got in touch with me down the line, and he recalled that that was probably a Gestetner. Um, that is going to sound like alien language to some listeners, and it's going to be very familiar to others. So oh, yes. I guess we've got to answer a couple of questions here. You know, what's erroneo? What's a gestetna? They're going to have to be brief answers. Why should we care when we have other options right now? There is a third one out there that Hamish has raised to me. And, and I think we'll wind up that part of the discussion by saying, you know, Hamish, why did you decide to go back and do 
both your fanzines on a Gestetner? What did you gain from literally re, you know, turning the clock back that you feel we've lost right now? So, but let me start. You know, you live close to the old Ronio factory, don't you, uh, Rob? Yeah, not that far. I mean, I'm about 40 minutes on a train ride. It just so happens that once, once a week I go to a shop over there that's on Ronio Corner. And as I sent you that photograph, um, on, on, there's basically a supermarket there now, more or less, on what was the old factory site. But there is a sculpture of an actual um, duplicator, which, which may possibly be the only sculpture of a duplicator in the world, which is there. So, yeah, that's where neat. the factory was. That was up in um, Ronio Corner in Romford. That's where uh, Ronios were made. And Gestetners were made at a similar factory up in Tottenham. And that also, needless to say, is also long since gone. Yeah, um, they both and, are they both British inventions? Or were these just British factories for uh, another country's invention? I think that Gestetner was the guy who invented the uh, the rotary duplicator. Um, the word, the term Mimeo, by the way, is an American term. So that's what they started making them over there. The various companies over there did it, like um, Rex Rotary, AB Dick, et cetera, et cetera. And they, they always called Mimeos over there. Over here, they were always duplicators. I actually got to meet Jonathan Gestetner, who I think is the grandson of the, um, the guy who started the company at one point. And I was talking about Mimeos. He said, no, no, no. He said, duplicators so fair enough <laughs> i'll go along with what he says but i think um, one thing i was going to say tony was um when when you sort of try and look into buying the the old machines um ronio is very very scarce uh, whereas there are gestetners are plenty and my impression is that gestetners were pretty much just producing duplicators whereas it seemed like ronio produced all sorts of office equipment because when you Google um, or look for on eBay for um, for Ronios, what I'm seeing is sort of um, you know office cabinets and things like that, storage systems, um, and I very very difficult to find a, a duplicator. So huh. I haven't seen any statistics or anything like that, but just my impression is that there were far far more Gestetners in use than Ronios. All right. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Um, who wants to just say in like the like literally 30 seconds what these machines do? What? Yeah. You know, what are they? So, again, somebody that right now who's like self-publishing on Amazon is is like, well, what's a Ronio? What's a Gestetner? Who wants to take that? I will, if you like. Um, basically, it's a silkscreen process. The silkscreen is spread around a circular drum. Um, you've Ink is on the circular drum. You put put a wax stencil, which is they call it wax. It's actually a plastic covered in wax. Um, and between the backing sheet and the wax front, there's a piece of um, of um, carbon paper, so that when you bash it out on a typewriter, you know the, the holes, you can actually see what you're typing. When you when you've got that, you then put it all spread over the drum, and you you know you turn the um, you turn the handle, feeding paper through, and sheets of come out the other end printed. And that's basically as fast as possible describing more or less what a duplicator is. So it's basically a hand-cranked uh, printing machine of a kind. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. It was, but um, the same, the same form of silk screen that would have done T-shirts. Is that essentially the same process? It's the same process, but made rotary and, and mechanized. I mean, because basically, it's a silk screen that you're forcing the ink through, and the silk yeah. screen just happens to be wrapped around a metal drum. Were you able to tell, Rob, from the? Uh, did you get to look at those two fanzine covers I, I sent you? Would you be able to tell which was Ronio and which was Gestetner? Nope, I don't think anybody can, unless you've got a multicolor cover, because multicolors was something you could do with um, with Ronios that were that was rather more difficult to do with a, a Gestetner, because Ronios had um, removable drums, so therefore you could have a set of drums with different colored inks in them. Whereas if you wanted to change the ink color on a on a um, a Gestetner, you'd basically have to flush the whole bloody system out and put a colored ink in, print it, and then flush it all out again. So it, it was just more trouble than it was worth. Do you have anything to add on that, um, Hamish, uh, in terms of defining them? You, you, you wrote to me about a third system. Um, and again, uh, you, you can follow on from here about uh, the attraction for you of going back and using one of these to produce your zines. Yeah, well, the only thing I was going to add was that the Gestetno is, you know, it's a really solid, robust piece of cast iron equipment. So there are a lot of people you know, who still have them in lying around, they might have been unused for 60 years or so, uh, still selling them. And, and you can pick one up pretty cheaply. But what you can't get is the, the stencils and the, you can get, you can get the ink. Uh, the stencils are harder to find. And that was the difficulty I had, finding someone who could give me the stencils. 
Um, so um, if anyone else wanted to do it, um, yeah, you can get the Gestetner pretty easily, but um, but actually producing the fanzine takes a bit more trouble than that. The other thing is that um, although they are really, really robust, I've since been told that everyone who sells them, they say, you know, just sold as seen because it's untested. I guess what I'm saying is if anyone else did want to undertake this, which is a hell of a, you know, labour of love, um, you know, they could get in touch with me and I'd, um, I'd, I'd try and help them out that way. Can I ask what the August Stetner cost you, Rob? I mean, sorry, not Rob, Hamish. Hamish, what did the, can I, can I ask? Is that a government secret? No, no, that's fine. Um, I, I paid um, Jim up in North London £125, which was for, you know, a guaranteed working machine, but also he got the stencils and he got the ink. So, um, and he gave me the training. That was the really important thing as well, because, you know, you do need a bit of training to, to get it to work. And you need quite a lot of practice, actually. The first one I produced, even though I was, I'd sort of seen it working and had a go on it, I was making lots of mistakes. So did you say £125? Yes. That's a, that's a bargain. Oh, that's yeah. Only, and if you yeah. look online, I mean, you might pick one up for 50 quid. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's, an, that's an absolute bargain. I didn't expect you to say that. That's, um, that, that's really interesting. It does, it does suggest there's lots of them around. So now then... Um, yeah, at this You're point, you going to get one yourself, Tony. <laughs> well, um, no, <laughs> but but I am really, really interested in why you decided to produce um, both your fanzines. You may want to just repeat what you know why you have two scenes <coughs> on a Gestetner, um, and also kind of like how it influenced the actual zines that you then wrote and published through that Gestetner. So, you know, yeah, what was what was the attraction of, of rewinding the clock there for you? Um, well, uh, because I've got memories, my first fanzine was um, produced on a Gisetna and by a sort of friend of my dad's. I was about 17. And in fact, this chap, Roger Cambray, he produced uh, the village um, newsletter on his Gisetna. And so I remember once, once in a while I'd help with the collation of that. I think I just always liked the, you know, the fact that you can have this printing equipment in your own home and produce. I've always liked the idea of just publishing in all its forms. Yep. And um, he helped me by producing my first fanzine, which was the Sparks one. And after that, all of them have been done at um, High Street Printers. But um, after doing We Peaked at Paper, uh, I, I was, and speaking to Rob, I was just so sort of, it's got a certain sort of romance, I think, you know, having the machine yourself. The great thing about a fanzine is you write it yourself. You don't have an editor telling you what to do. You don't have anyone telling you what to do. You do whatever you want with it. Write whatever you want. Sell it to whoever you want. And um, the Gestetna seemed to be just adding another bit of that, which is you print it all yourself and, uh, you know, you take absolute responsibility for everything. Yeah. Do you have any self-publishing equipment at your place, Rob? Like, have you ever had, have you had an int- No. Did you have a Gestetner at one point? Oh, yeah. Yes. Right, right. It used to sit right behind this chair, in fact, up until the year 2014. That, was, right. that year was the last time we had the uh, World Science Fiction uh, Convention in London. And the call went out. They said, Does any, has anybody got an you know, Because by that time, we, we, we hadn't used them in about 20 years or so. Um, those of us who were the, the last users of them, the call went out. They said, we want to put on an ex- exhibition at the convention of uh, old technology. Is there anybody who's got a, a old ship kit? I said, yeah, I've got one. I said, if you take it away, I said, I will I will actually sh- show you how to use it at the convention, et cetera, et cetera. I will supply you with stencils, ink, paper, but I don't want it back. Just take it away because, you know, I hadn't used it in 20 years and this, this they're quite heavy gear. So at the 2014 uh, convention, I, was, I went there and it, it was a, a kind of nostalgia thing to actually be leaning over the machine again. I'm sure, sure Hamish is starting to discover this that when you when you're using the duplicator, you're forever looming over the machine. You're kind of you, you're fiddling with stuff and you're watching the sheets come out. So if they start coming up faint, faint you know, you've got to stop and adjust the ink feed and all manner of stuff. It's it's, it's actually a lot more tactile and kind of um um, it's like I suppose driving a car or playing a musical instrument when you've got a Gestetner. When you've got a when you've got um, a photocopier, you just stand there waiting for them to come out. So it's it's a lot more personal, I think, using a, a Gestetner. So I was able to um, show them how to use this prehistoric um, 
equipment at the convention and you know people were fascinated by this they couldn't believe that this is what people used to do but we did so there you go yeah i as i was to say i never actually did the process myself um and moved on to the offset life although that's also a pretty uh, artisanal machine to use i i certainly my years of working with jolly at better badges he had to get to grips with that there was a lot of trial and error there is a lot of standing over the machine making sure it's doing its job uh which of course you don't have you know with 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 a, a, a digital format um and th- and thanks so much for elaborating on that rob uh hamish um you were kind enough to send me copies of both your zines one by one uh you know your spark zine i guess that's a part of you that's a, that there's that fandom right that's that's been your act that you followed since before obviously before the movie got made and they've had a resurgence is that fair to say yeah i i got into them in the sort of um the, the mid 80s when they were at their absolute commercial nadir and um so you know it wasn't the best time to launch a, a spark fanzine really but um I was obsessed with them. I was sort of, um, well, I was 17 when I did the fanzine and I got into them for the, you know, two or three years before that. But but because they didn't have much, uh, there really wasn't much of a following at the time. They weren't touring. They couldn't even get a tour um, and they could barely get their albums released at that period. It was actually, if you if you were a fan of the band, you, you could actually easily find other other Sparks fans and we all kept in touch with each other. Because there were so few of us, it's hard to imagine now. Because um, they, they've become so big again, and I could never see that happening. But um, yeah, when I did the fanzine, um, there weren't many of us around. Right. <clears throat> so that's one of them, and the other one, which we did talk about on uh, you know ten, nine, ten episodes back, um, Sudad, which is your your sort of zine zine. What I really liked about this is that. Uh, uh, when you produced this one on a Gestetner, you took a very fanzine-like attitude to it because I know you're a writer and you're a publisher. You put out your own, you know your book. We peaked at paper. It's really professional. It's almost like you became the 14, 15-year-old putting together this this fanzine. I mean, it's very meta. Can you describe a little bit of what I mean here? What you what you did with this issue? Like, who did you interview? What did you put on the cover? Are there any pictures in there? How did you describe things in this scene? Because it's it's very yeah. cool. It's very artsy. Thank you. Thank you very much, Tony. Um, yeah, I, I think maybe one thing we haven't spoken about, um, this is a bit of a digression, but um, yeah, you, you can't very easily put um, pictures in... Uh, in, in the fanzines. The the Gestetner is really, the process of doing the, the stencils, it's really geared towards um, the typewriter. That's what works really well. So for any kind of images or hand-drawn photographs, anything like that, there are like, there's two things. One is um, you can get this sort of stylus and actually inscribe the, uh, the wax stencil which I've done for, you know, the, um, the cover lettering on uh, Saudage. But um, for the rest of the lettering, it's a bit haphazard. It's a bit hit and miss. Um, it was a lot worse on, it's better on the Saudage than on the Tacky Tiger. But I quite like the idea that it, that it really, I mean, when I came back to do these um, zines this year, I, I dis- decided I was just going to do them um, on the typewriter and just try and do a few headings with the uh with the stylus um and that's yeah that's what i did well i what i really like about uh, about this this when i'm talking about this sort of like going back to being a naive teenager you've you've put up front you know you've got your three interviews typed on the front alistair roberts who i didn't know but appears to be one of your very favorite artists um quite folky if i may um mickey yeah. berenyi who was a guest on this show indeed the most popular episode we've had and no, no surprise because she's so great to talk with zine mongering in the 80s so you interviewed her purely about her fanzine exp- uh, days um I'm interested to know if that came before or after we did the episode with her. And I especially like, you've got Kevin Rowland, who uh, was a, 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 I don't know about a role model, but a hero of mine <laughs> musically in the early 80s. You've, you've put it his most candid interview yet, which is just yes. classic fanzine BS, because how was it you actually interviewed <laughs> Kevin? <laughs> Hamish, how was the yeah, interview it, conducted? It was, it was like two and a half minutes, the interview, but... Um... 
two minutes eighteen seconds. Yeah, he he was he just happened to be in a in a record shop signing some albums, and uh, it, it was very good of him. He agreed to. Uh, I and I have my little uh, tape recorder on me, so um, yeah, he let me he let me uh, just talk to him while he was signing the albums. Right, and you've written it up exactly as it took as as it occurred. So you've lit, like, much like you did actually with the book, we piece of paper. So you've got him literally saying, uh, "He's answering your questions simultaneously." Like, "Yeah, can you pass me another record? You know, like pass me another CD. Who do you want this made out to? That kind yeah. of thing in the middle, right?" Yeah, I, I like the bit where he just goes, "Okay, okay, okay, okay." <laughs> yeah very yeah very very poetic it does actually sound like one of his songs doesn't it it sounds like until i believe in my soul you know just repeating the word <laughs> again and again um yeah. very very uh but it's very enjoyable for that because even just the last episode we did it did of this alistair mckay who used to write for jamming uh he had his scottish fanzine and he had trailed the last orange juice interview and i said so you know what was the story behind that and he said oh just somebody had done an interview with them and i realized they'd broke up so i just thought i'd claim it to be the last interview they didn't discuss a breakup or anything it's just looked good on the cover so i mean that's just yeah. a fanzine tradition and it's also a fanzine tradition to buttonhole people it's um a very polite form of door stopping you just go to a dressing room and go can i ask you five questions and you do it and print it in the fanzine so you had an exclusive interview so rob i saw you get up and go off and get something while hamish was talking was that uh was, was were you were you seeing if you had a gestetner hiding in the cupboard or something no i've got, I've got plenty <laughs> of gestetner stuff though i mean this this is um obviously because you're on audio they're not going to see it but there's a set of the um of the styli that um hamish would have used for instance that's a good, genuine gestetner set Right, so what I'm realising now, the first issue I recall typing straight onto a stencil, the classic thing being if you make a mistake that's a really bad mistake, you've got to start again, or you just live with the error? No, no you use correction, stencil correcting fluid you use, which um, that's one of the things I told Hamish. I showed him a bottle that I still have here of, mm-hmm. of stencil correcting fluid. He took a sniff and said, blimey, that's strong, which it was. <laughs> yeah. And I said, what you basically use is a cheap nail varnish. It does exactly the same, because that's basically what it is. Okay. You, you basically paste over. You basically paint over when you've made an error, and you know retype. Okay. I don't think I did I, that. I didn't when bother I, doing that. Yeah. I just, uh, I just sort of typed Extra, over the uh, mistake and wrote something else because that was part of the aesthetic I kind of liked. So actually, what you were saying mm. earlier, Tony, about the um, the fact that you know we peek the paper is very pro- professionally done because actually that's what I do for my day job is I work in publishing and um, you know as a copy editor and a proofreader. And you have to be such a pedant, you know, about grammar, punctuation, consistency. And one of the things I really like about fanzines is you don't have to do any of that. You can do whatever you like. And, uh, you know, I, I, I almost welcomed the little mistakes that the, uh, that the typewriter introduced. Yeah, and funny enough, I was just looking for one in Sudad and uh, I found one. I found an example. It's the word example, which you, which you, <laughs> okay. which you mistyped. And you you had to type over it, just one letter, and I and I'm going to move I'm going to move on from that anyway. I really like what you've done with that, uh, Hamish, and it does sort of speak to you know. Similarly, I'm doing like some academic courses, and everything has to be cited to an extent that I've never had to do in the past. I've always left that to people like you, to be honest, copy editors and <laughs> and sub editors, and uh, it's such it's so enjoyable to have a part of your life where you can the errors. It's the little inconsistencies that make it what it is, right? I mean, would you agree with that, Rob, about the whole fanzine culture, whether it's science fiction, music, perzines, football fanzines? Um, in, well, maybe. I mean, the whole point of, that uh, Hamish said about the fact that if you had the computer, if you had the duplicator at home, you could basically come home, you could type something up, you could print it off, and then when you left the house the next time, you put them in the mail. So you've got con- whole, you've got control over the whole process. Is fine. Um, I, I somewhat disagreed with him about the uh, overtyping because, again, correction fluid, etc. So we we did try and make them look reasonably good within the limits that we had. So you know, um, I used to draw covers for fanzines, but I would only do covers. I, w- I would never do internal illos because I always thought they were just decoration, and I never quite saw the point of them. Yeah, I noticed that the, the science fiction fanzines, the ones that I looked at, <clears throat> including Epsion, so, and, and I only looked at a few. As you say, there's thousands of them out there. They do seem more word-driven than um, art-driven. And the fanzine culture that I came up through 
the, the cut and paste art of the punk and post-punk years was really important. The idea that you could create some art with your, your tipex and your, your cow gum and your glues and your scissors um, in in a way that I don't see in the science fiction fanzines. Am I just not looking hard enough or is it fair enough to say that a fanzine culture based around literature is going to be quite literary in that sense, even if it's fan fandom? Well, primarily, yes. But having said that, there were fanzines put out by people who were who were kind of artists, and they they were kind of very arty, but they were very, very much in the minority. And as for collage of the sort that um, the cut and paste that the punk zines did, I don't recall much of that at all, other than occasionally people putting together a, a cover doing that, you know. Um, but that was usually done for satirical intent rather than uh, artists. But yeah, but there's a fair amount of arty in Epsilon, though, isn't there, Rob? Because you're you're quite an adept uh, illustrator yourself. You don't mind me saying. Well, thank you. Yeah, well, I used to draw the covers myself because, again, back then, well, I used to draw covers for lots of fanzines back then. I don't actually draw much of anything in years, but I, because I could, I did. But, I mean, you know, so, therefore, I do something that kind of, um, I was, I, you'll observe, um, Tony, that on, well, let's see, there were 18 issues, and on, on at least four of them, you'll find a duplicator on the cover. That's because in terms of fanish iconography, we had a whole kind of, um, iconography slightly in mythology about about duplicators anyway you also sent me a link to a um some kind of conference about uh, the, the the mimeograph uh, yep. and just the process and it ended we don't have time to go over the, like what that conference all of it was but it ended with this incredible i love this stuff this multimedia thing that combined people people were handed uh, uh, they were asked to supply a line of a poem. They were asked to attend a stapling collating party. Somebody played double bass. Then there was human brain waves being turned into sound. And the whole thing was somehow like then turned into an individual issue copy of a zine that somebody could then take home with them. Um, it's pretty pretty mad stuff, but it brought together all these different elements of, of artsiness and also just like, hey, we need you to stick around and be part of the collating and stapling, which is a great memory for some of us who did our fanzines back in the day. Right. I, I didn't actually participate in that, but I basically was sat there chatting to friends. But um, <laughs> some, I did discover something. There's always something new you can discover. Um, the, the guys who did that will, will call themselves Altgar Bra, who basically are really into um, into um, duplicator technology. They did something with duplicators that in, what, 70, 80 years, we'd never done, which is that they figured out that you, if you put a big image on a stencil and you feed a roll of paper through it, you just you basically get a repeating image. So therefore, you, you get end up with these long things that you can just hang down the side of a stage or something. Never ever occurred to us. Nobody ever can, occurred to you know run a roller through. So there's always something new you can find out. Yeah, there is, and I think maybe a really good place to leave this because we, we we've been chatting for an hour, and obviously there's 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 so much in there with the history. I want to ask you where in this parallel universe, and and it fascinated me that you were putting out epsilon while I was putting out jamming, and they were you know parallel subcultures where mm. is science fiction fandom at these days um is there still a thriving zine culture i think you answer that first rob and i, I and then hamish i think maybe you can just like chime in and say where you think the future of 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 what you and i came up knowing fanzines to be lies where you where you see that culture now um rob you go first yes there is still a thriving zine culture but it's um, it's an online culture now, um, because like, fanact.org is primarily about preserving fanzines from the past. There's another um, site called eFanzines, which basically people who put together uh, fanzines these days who usually do them as PDFs, they send there. And I mean, once or twice a week, I'll get an update where they, you know it'll be a list of the fanzines that have been added in that time. So there's still a thriving culture there. It's just not one that I'm that connected to. I'm basically kind of an analog guy living in a digital age, I'm afraid. Right. So. Sounds a little like you as well, Hamish. Yeah, um, yes, absolutely. I mean, for me, um, one of the things we decided when we did our book was um, we 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 called it We Peaked at Paper because we, we decided e-zines aren't proper zines. And yeah. uh, that was <laughs> that was the only the only thing we were really uh, set on, because it's very easy to get into these discussion of what is a zine? Is this thing a zine? Is that thing a zine? And uh, I didn't really want to set any hard and fast rules about it, except that um, I felt, yeah, it should be on paper because if it's online, um, 
why is it not a, a website or a blog or something? We've got all that other terminology for that. So um, that was my that was my rule. Um, as for where is it where is it going? Um, the the more recent ones that I've read, the re more recent zines I've seen, an awful lot of them. I, I, there are very very few music ones. The only one I can think of is uh, Pint Size Punk, which was started by Arlo in the uh, in the West Country during lockdown and he's kept it going and he's already on to about issue 20 something i think and that's brilliant um but uh, all the other zines i've seen they're much more like the per zines and uh, they're much more likely to be discussing uh one's personal experience of it could be anorexia for example things like that i've seen lots of zines of that kind um i'd love to see more music type of zine but um i don't see any signs that it's gonna happen yeah and i will also say that right well, i think you're right there hamish about about those zines they're, they're not produced by people like us but by which i mean older white males as well there's there's uh i see it leaning way for more more female these days and more multicultural multi-ethnic you know international cosmopolitan as well that's my that's my take on it, which is to me all of all of that is a a very good thing. But I think as the sort of cultures change and the people who produce the scenes change, so does some of the so does some of the content uh, moving towards the Persian. And I've actually just thought the perfect place to end this. Um, I noticed we're reading through today because I handed that Sparks scene off to my Sparks loving friend. You tried to sell, uh, was it both zines, Taki Tiger and Sudar, at the Sparks concert at the Royal Albert Hall? Uh, what was the reaction to that, Hamish? How successful were you? That would be a great place to leave this. Like, what do people make of, of a Gestetner zine in 2023? Yeah. yeah. Um, well, actually, more recently than that, I had I had more of a success with the uh, with, with the new Saudage, where I took it along to a Dexys gig in Bath, and uh, I, I I took took ten copies along and sold it in the bar really really easily. I could have taken more. And um, I mean, you have absolutely no idea how much work I have to put in to sell ten copies of the zine online. I'm uh, I'm I'm totally inept at social media, and I have to send out emails which uh, to a hundred people, which probably will generate a single sale. Oh, it was so lovely going to that bar and just finding people wanting to buy it, and uh, just getting rid of ten zines just like that. Great. Less successful at the Sparks concert at the Royal Albert Hall? Yeah. Um, what I was finding, a strange thing, actually. They, um, I, I, I couldn't sell inside. That's one thing I had to be ready for, that the security are going to be, you know, stop you and throw you out. Um, but I was asking people as they were going in, a lot of them, you know, just treat you like a beggar. Um, some people stop and, uh, and chat. There are quite a lot of people who who said, "Oh, I'm not really into Sparks. I'm just going to I'm just going to the concert because someone gave me a ticket." I, I was quite surprised by that phenomenon. Yeah, that says something too, and that's going to be hard for you when you have been a, when you came into the group in the you know the, what you call the the you know, the Nadir. I always called it Nadir, but you see, I'm one of these people who got so into words I never learned how they were pronounced, and that includes Saldard, which I mispronounced through the whole of this episode as well but there you go that's just words i, I think i'm mispronouncing it as well it's a portuguese word uh, it, was, it was a ludicrous pretentious thing to do to... Yeah, i know we debated this last time around and i think we still didn't settle on the pronunciation too well it's uh it's a really 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 good conversation thanks both both for taking part and um, again go to tonyfletcher.substack.com that's that's a, a better place than the show notes which you're welcome to look at on your phone and that'll, that'll give you a hyperlink over there but i'm going to put up a few of these covers so that you can see what the hell we're talking about and uh it has occurred to me that if the world missed 100 years since the first uh fanzine back in uh oh no hang on we're not there i was getting my no. dates wrong no nope. 2030 will be the first anniversary of the 100 yep. years of the american zine and 2036 if we all live till then if uh, the world hasn't run out of food and hasn't boiled us alive uh, 2036 another 100 year anniversary in 2040 if any of us are still here we can celebrate 100 years of the word fanzine. Thank you, Rob. Thank you, Hamish. Absolute delight. And Thanks, take Tony. care. Yeah. Cheers. 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 Take care Thanks, of yourselves. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
And that, as I believe they say, is a wrap. Thanks again to Rob and Hamish for taking part. And let me encourage you once more to go over to tonyfletcher.substack.com. There will be a dedicated post, which will be linked to in the show notes here. But there will be a dedicated post dated, you know, November, what, 22nd, 2023, dedicated to this episode. What is the first fanzine? What was the first fanzine? And I have loaded up uh, covers from the various uh, fanzines that we talked about and books that we talked about in this episode, something you can't do in regular show notes. So that's another reason just for me to encourage you to go over there. It's where I'm hosting everything now and enjoying that process. And I can mix the words and the images and the audio can all go together, even video if we wanted to do that. And in fact, I've got a YouTube link for that conference I was talking about as well. And uh, just to throw in a couple of credits, the music in this episode, as always, the theme music is by my son, Noel Fletcher. The uh, logo was designed by Greg Morton, and I appreciate that over at Omnibus Press, who put out my book, uh, The Best of Jamming. And um, I know what the next episode is meant to be. It's meant to be taking us partly to the United States for our first uh, American guest. And I just don't want to jinx it, but if you're listening in contemporary time, it should be out uh, just before Christmas 2023. If you're listening in the future, hey, did we get anything right? Catch you later. Bye. Do you want to buy a copy of Jamming?